Well, hello. I'm here with the wonderful Phil Mycans, and we're going to talk today about peptides. And Phil has been studying peptides for a couple of decades or something now. Is that right? I think you're right, Clive. I, I get lost on time, but it probably is very close to that. So you just put on a fantastic conference, which really was amazing, and I learned an awful lot. But what would be great today is if you could tell the audience uh, about peptides, why they're so wonderful, and their anti-aging properties, you know, mm. amongst the others. Mm. Oh, it'd be my pleasure to do that. Um, thank you for commenting on the conference, which we call the Profound Health Summit. And uh, so if people look that up on Google, they'll find it. And the videos of that conference will actually be available later this week. So anyone that wasn't there can go and have a look at those. And um, we had a number of experts come in from around the world. Um, so very quickly, people don't know what are peptides. Well, peptides are made up of amino acids um, and they can be very long chains actually. So we change the names. So we get what we call short chains of uh, amino acids. Uh, so that could be two, three or four. These, these are, once you get two amino acids, you have a peptide. That's called a dipeptide. But two, three or four amino acids, that's a what we're calling a peptide bioregulator. I'll come back to that. And then beyond that, we can start, there are all sorts of peptides, and then it can become protein, and then it can even become hormones. So to give you an example of a hormone that's made up of a lot of amino acids, we could talk about human growth hormone, which is 191 amino acids. Very, very long indeed. But what the conference was really about was highlighting what the Soviets were doing back in the 80s and 90s and what is now available in many of the Russian-speaking countries, which they refer to as peptide bioregulators. You've been taking them yourself. Do, do you notice anything? Yeah, it's an interesting, um, interesting question. Uh, if I said in the main I don't, but there was one occasion when I did. And like all things, whatever you're into, if you're really into preventative and regenerative medicine, if you want to call it that, or anti-aging or longevity medicine or whatever your favorite term is, but we're all trying to do the same thing, which is maximize our health span, to live as long and as healthy as we can. Um, where do you start and where do you end? You know, whatever it is you're into, it doesn't matter if it's minerals or hormones or stem cells or whatever it is you want to get into, where do you start and where do you end? And I would argue that in the main, you start with your weak points. Because if you think of a human as a very complicated machine, then as a machine, we're only as strong as our weakest part. And when I first got into the peptide bioregulators, and I need to also tell you about the original Soviet studies and what they used, and, and I do follow some of that because of the evidence. But one of the things I was acutely aware of is I, I thought I had adrenal fatigue. Um, you know, if anyone's experienced that, basically the adrenal glands are on top of the kidneys and they do produce a lot of hormones, you know, several hormones in fact. And uh, people who have adrenal fatigue generally are very tired in the afternoons. You might even want to nap at say two or three or four o'clock uh, and then come back to things as it were. So I started taking the adrenal uh, peptide bioregulator fairly early on and within a month 
I would say that I didn't have adrenal fatigue anymore. Now, it's slightly unscientific because if I'd done it properly, I should have known what my DHEA levels were, what my all those sterone levels, cortisol levels, and all the other myriad of hormones, but I didn't do that, I will admit. Although, what's fascinating, because from the, all the Russian studies, and they have now dosed these products over a million times, because this used to be a Soviet military secret. They were designed for their troops, for their cosmonauts, and uh, believe it or not, for their Olympic teams as well. Um, and that's an, a fascinating story if we want to get into how it, they came about to find it. But they found that it really helped these people recover very quickly from whatever it was, like long periods in space, as an example. And we know that these peptides lead to protein synthesis. So in other words, a lot of repair gets done. But they also have this remarkable property that nobody fully understands, but it's almost certainly because they are gene switches. Absolutely direct. They're nano-sized and they act directly on the DNA. And I'm getting that from Professor Vladimir Kavinson, who's the head researcher in all of this, has been for many, many years. And he actually said this at the Luton Who meeting that we had a few weeks ago. And so by acting as gene switches, all sorts of things are going to happen. But the most amazing thing is they bioregulate. So what do I mean by that? Well, let's take an easy example. If one had a weak thyroid, so one was hypothyroid, if you take the bioregulator, it will, over a short period of time, invigorate your thyroid gland to produce more thyroid hormones because of acting on the genes responsible. But here's the weird thing. If you're hyperthyroid, in other words, you have too much uh, thyroid hormones, it does the opposite. And so it's presumed that safety profile is so fantastic because it operates within a margin. It won't allow you to go too high. It won't allow you to go too low. Now, that would never be the case if you were to take a thyroid hormone. Clearly, if you took a thyroid hormone, you're putting it straight into your blood and it would be necessary for you to have the tests to make sure that you didn't have too much thyroid and create a situation which is called downregulation. That is to say, in this case, the thyroid gland would no longer make any thyroid hormones. So that's the delicacy by taking hormones. You need a lot more close supervision. But it does not seem to be the case after 40 years of Russian research, after being dosed over a million times, they've never seen a serious side effect with these peptide bioregulators. And I think it's because they are the messages in food. Um, you know, if we think about what's in food, you know, there's fiber, there's vitamins, there's minerals, there are fats, um, etc. But we now know there are also these short chain peptides in food which are acting as specific gene switches. And so that really is a remarkable discovery. And would you say that modern farming has knocked out those peptides in normal food? That's another good question. Um, I can't, uh, can't answer that directly, but what we can say, as was well known, it's knocked out a lot of the supporting materials, whether it's selenium or magnesium or whatever it is. And even, I believe, in studies, I'm sure we both read, Clive, that there are studies that even organic food today could be down by 30, 40, 50% on some of these ingredients. So I would suggest on, on that basis, there is a possibility that that would also be true. Um, 
Yes, it, it, I don't know that as an answer. It's a good question. I might try. I think, I think your answer that it could be the supporting materials like the minerals that are so missing that we can't repair from that perspective. Uh, a couple of things that you mentioned, one of them feeling tired at three or four o'clock in the afternoon. Yep. Because for a lot of people, it's not adrenal fatigue, it's low blood sugar. Oh, uh, yes, they yes. They way too much at lunchtime, their blood sugar spiked, and then it crashes, they've got to have a rest for about 10 minutes. That's true. That's very, very, very true. And a lot of people would get that from um, carbohydrates, which, you know, most people would say, oh, it's sugar, but if I haven't eaten any sugar, but if you just had a load of potatoes, uh, you're doing the same thing. A lot of people don't understand the difference between simple carbohydrates and complex carbohydrates. And that's worth knowing. So you eat the right vegetables that aren't going to give you that problem, perhaps. Well, because it, it's like fruit where the berries have way less sugar and carbohydrate value than, say, a melon or something else that's sweeter. Yes. Just to come back to an earlier point, something that's popped into my head. Uh, we talk about these peptides as being gene switches. And that, as I say, there's so much published research from Russians now, it's, it's almost, it's undeniable. In fact, it should be a Nobel Prize winning discovery, actually. Uh, although, of course, politics at the moment won't allow that to happen. Um, but, but if you think about their gene switch, let's go back to the thyroid as our, as our easier example. The gene could be activated, but the material, i.e. iodine, to manufacture the various thyroid hormones, T3, T4, etc., has to still be available. So it's a kind of hand-in-glove situation when you think about it. Well, absolutely. And iodine will help us to raise hypothyroid patients and lower the thyroid production, hyperthyroid. You know, yes. It's magic. Yes. No, iodine's a very good example of that. Um, to come back to the original studies that most people find amazing when they hear about it, um, you know, if you look at most pharmaceutical companies these days, you know, you're lucky if a few hundred people are in a trial. You know, uh, there's been various examples where very small numbers of people, and we won't even talk about the mRNA vaccines because we can count the number of people on that on one hand. But, um, but the Russians did some trials, uh, two major trials with these peptides uh, in the late 80s and the early 90s, one of which was with gas and oil workers funny enough, located in Siberia. So pretty hostile environment anyway. And it was studied, it was, it was something like 12,000 people who were studied over about several years, eight, nine years, in fact. There was, a, there was an elongation of the study in a smaller number of people. Um, but what they gave these people, they, either, they gave them three peptides. They gave them the blood vessel peptide, they gave them the thymus peptide and they gave them the pineal peptide. And they had a whole bunch of controls. There were about 3,000 people, I believe, if memory serves me right, who were in the controls and they gave them some vitamin pills. And obviously people didn't know what, what they were taking. What they showed at the end of like a 10-year study, um, and, and bear in mind that most of the people when they started this study were like 45, 55, that sort of range. So many of these people went on to retire. And they did actually follow up some of those retirees as well uh, for a number of years. What they showed was that compared to the controls, the people who took the peptides had one third of the morbidity and even one third of the mortality uh, compared to the controls, which is a massive decrease, an absolutely massive decrease. And then you'd say, well, why were those three peptides possibly the most potent as a general 
guide because none of these people, you know, it wasn't as if they took them and said, oh, you have adrenal fatigue, take the adrenal peptide. They just blanketed this population. Um, well, blood vessel peptide improves blood flow. You know, that's pretty universal. So anything that is going to improve the supply of nutrition to the cell and remove toxins from the cell is going to have a benefit, obviously. Um, the thymus is going to increase the number of hormones. And by the way, those 13 thymic hormones are all, wait for it, peptides that the thymus gland produces. And we all know that the thymus gland starts to atrophy very early. In fact, it's the first gland. When we reach puberty, it starts to shrink. So some people say that's the beginning of aging. You know, it's the concept that nature has decided we can now reproduce. So it's the beginning of a degenerative decline. Slightly controversial, but that's been voiced. And then finally, the pineal peptide, which I know we've spoken in other things about the pineal. It's a very, very interesting gland right in the center of the brain. Does all sorts of wonderful things. But to also come back to another presentation that was made at the Profound Health Summit, by an American doctor called Bill Lawrence. And Bill had taken 39 patients and given them these peptides and monitored them over three years. Because a lot of people unfortunately say, well, you know, it's Soviet research, it's, you know, Russian research, and not just Russia, but you've also got the Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and some of the other Russian speaking countries are all involved in this research. And they said, well, we don't trust it. So I always say, well, do you trust America? because we've got an American doctor now who's studied his patients over three years, he's presented the details, and all of his patients have improved in various ways. And the two most fascinating ways of these patients were elongation of their telomeres and improvement in their DNA methylation. And both those aspects are very high on the anti-aging world at the moment and have profound effects on people. So that's a fascinating study, I think. So it, I think if anyone wants to get into these peptides and they're not sure what to take, I would say follow the science, follow the clinical evidence, at least take those three. Follow the science is almost a dirty phrase now, isn't mm, it? I know, that's very true, that's very true. I'm sure there'll be a fact checker box underneath this when it goes out. <laughs> <laughs> but but the other the other good news I think or interesting news is that um, unlike a lot of supplements and especially hormones, you do not have to take these peptides every day. Um, as uh, Professor Cavinson once said to me, he said, um, "The gene is on or the gene is off." Let's put it like that. It's activated or it's silenced. There's no middle ground, um, and so th there are periods at which it can be reactivated or silenced, whichever way you want to go, but it's not necessary to take them every day. So a typical course of peptides is two capsules a day for 10 days every month. And you can either do that every month, or if you're a healthy person and you just kind of want to stay healthy, then they only do it every three months. So it's not as if you have to take these things every day, far from it. So if somebody's got a particularly serious condition, would they want to take two a day for a couple of months? Yes, I would say if it's a really serious condition, they would stay on two capsules a day and perhaps not back off until they see the improvement that they require. It depends what how life-threatening the, the issue is. Um, but yes, in those circumstances, it's what's called the intensive course. Now, in the Russian-speaking countries, they also use the injections. 
Um, they're not available at the present time in the West, but the food supplements, which are the capsules, the good news is they've been proven to work and they've got all the evidence of how it passes through the stomach. Because a, a lot of people will say, well, you know, there's so many things are destroyed in the stomach. You know, I mean, the classic is, how does a bodybuilder put on muscle mass by eating a steak or a salmon? And you say, well, how can it be? Because the protein that's in that meat is destroyed in the stomach. Well, we now know why, because a lot of the proteins, some of them anyway, are broken down into short chain peptides which pass through the stomach wall, which induce protein synthesis. So you're not getting directly the protein from the steak, but you're getting the peptides from the steak. So that is something to take, in, it, take into account. So the really good news is the peptide capsules, they work and they've got all the data to prove it. So let's say somebody's got an issue with an organ, lung, liver, kidney, whatever it might be, because um, there are about 25 peptides that mm -hmm. how, how excited should people be by the prospect that their kidney damage will be repaired and, you know, I mean, give us a few examples of what is likely to happen and, and so people don't get overexcited mm. and expect too much. Yeah? No, quite. I mean, obviously, if we're talking to people who have serious medical life-threatening conditions it is a different world because there may be a lot of other things they should be thinking of but most of the people that we're talking to are in a mild state of disease um, and also the whole aspect of aging is a degeneration as i'm sure most of us will accept and therefore how can we slow prevent and hopefully reverse at least aspects of aging, which I believe we can do today with the global aim, because there's a huge movement now, and many big names are now becoming involved in the concept of longevity medicine. You know, uh, because if you think about it, there are only four categories of disease. Are they, they're either infectious, genetic, a trauma, i.e. an accident, or degenerative. And it's very easy to argue that degenerative diseases are the diseases of aging. Not many 20-year-olds with Alzheimer's or arthritis, etc. extremely rare. So that's what we can expect. And, and, and if you look at the financial side of it, like here in the UK, we can expect to spend in the NHS something approaching 90% of the money on degenerative diseases. So if we can make an impact on that side, but not only do we save a lot of money, but we can also save a lot of people in terms of the suffering that they don't have to go through. So I think the, the magic of the peptides is in supporting those people who have milder conditions and uh, also supporting their health for the long term. Um, and yes, I've heard all sorts of things in the type, for example, give me one example. Um, had a gentleman come to me, an older gentleman, uh, um, well, probably about my age, actually. <laughs> I'll say that. Uh, and he had quite a low um, testosterone count. And uh, I think a lot of men know there's an andropause, that it's not, as, it's not as violent, shall we say, as a lady's menopause. But nonetheless, as we age, us men will expect to see lower testosterone for all sorts of reasons. And I would also argue to say that if a man can raise his testosterone to within a, a normal parameter, it's one of the best things they can do to get their vigor back, to have their, 
you know, the, the, the joie de vivre back or whatever you want to call it. Um, <clears throat> I know there are caveats. I know people, oh, what about prostate conditions? And other but that's another subject. So this gentleman wanted to raise his testosterone levels a little bit. So he went on to the testes peptide and he monitored himself before and after. And he was very happy because within, I think, a two to three month period, he saw a doubling of his testosterone level that put him into a near normal category. So he was very happy about that. So there are definitely ways that you can measure, depending on which peptide you're using, of course, that you can measure a hormone. I mean, the thyroid would be, again, a nice easy example. And the thyroid's a double easy example because rather than doing a blood, yes, you can do a blood test, of course, but the other way is to monitor your getting out of bed morning temperature. And over the course of days and certainly weeks, you will see your morning temperature edge up 0.1 degrees Celsius, maybe 0.2 degrees, maybe even 0.3 degrees Celsius. So you know it's working. So there are, depending on the peptide, depending on the condition. Um, the other thing, of course, is that like most agents, there are synergies. So if we start delving into more serious conditions, then we're going to start saying, don't just rely on one peptide try two or three. And again, coming back to my original thing about if Professor Cabinson says in all the programs, if, if you need a bit extra, take the blood vessel because it's just going to give you that boost. Or, and of course, thymus. What does the thymus do? It helps our immunity. So by having strong immunity, lots of good things are going to happen. So there are a number of agents we can take to you know, to, to make a synergistic program. One of the ones that surprised me is when they gave me the list of what the Olympic teams were using, <clears throat> I literally expected to see, you know, the muscle peptide that they have and, and other related testosterone peptide and other things. And I, they weren't at all. And it was like the kidney and the liver and it was about six or eight of them. But I was really surprised that they weren't using the ones that I expected them to use. But we have published this. We have it in our magazine, Aging Matters. We've put it up on the website from the Russians. And, you, the, and the Russians have websites in English that you can go and read the, the direct scientific and clinical stuff as well. Um, so, yeah, it's a fascinating, amazing story that is very poorly understood in the West, but I think has enormous potential. So... Let's talk about blood thinning because a lot of people are on blood thinning drugs which now are so dangerous because there's no remedy whereas with the old rat poison you mm. used to be able to turn the bleeding off but mm. now it's much more serious mm. um, so nobody wants to be on blood thinners so no, no. water of course is a rather good blood thinner I've always found. Mm. Mm. What, what do you got to say? Well there's a number of things Clive, I mean firstly, firstly there is a need uh, for blood thinning to some degree and the statistics show that a man up to the age of 50 has twice the risk of a heart attack or stroke of a woman up to the age of 50. But unfortunately, as the ladies go past 50, they catch us up. So you think, well, what's going on there? And I think we know the answer already. Uh, and that is that what do ladies stop doing around the age of 50? Well, they stop menstruating, don't they? They go into menopause. Um, so why would that be important? Well, they're giving a little blood every month. Um, they're getting rid of some toxins. We could argue that. That's probably true. But at the same time, the bone marrow is going to have to produce some more red blood cells and top it all up. Um, so, okay, let's, let's accept that for a moment. Is there any evidence of that for men? Well, yes, there is. 
Because statistics show that if a man donates a pint of blood every six months, he halves his risk of a heart attack or stroke. Unfortunately, I've, people have said, well, what happens if a woman does that? And I don't have the statistics on that. But isn't that fascinating? So the act of giving blood for the ladies during the menstrual cycle, for the men by going to the blood bank and giving blood, can, can seriously reduce a risk of a heart attack or stroke. So isn't that easy? I have a little theory on this as well. There's a very expensive machine that's called Rheologix that can measure the viscosity, the thickness of your blood. But if you're giving blood at the blood bank, it's a gravity-fed machine that's kind of rocking, if anyone's used it. And so, and they, the nurses will always take your time. How long were you in the chair? And I would say, get your time and keep your time and see what's happening. Is it the time going up or down? And it's only a blunt theory I have on this, but I reckon the faster you can give blood, the quick, the, the thinner your blood probably is. I know there's issues with the heartbeat as well, but I've spoken to nurses when I've done it and they say, oh, if I have a 19 year old girl in here, she's in and out in two minutes. But if we have a 65 year old man, he might be here for 20 minutes. Uh, in the chair. So I think there's something to that that I think we, we could take. It's a very blunt thing, but I think there's a way. And there's a cardiologist, American cardiologist, by the name of Kenneth Kenzie. And he wrote a book some years ago now called The Blood Thinner Cure. And he um, uh, analyzed all the major things in blood like cholesterol and C-reactive protein, HbA1c, triglycerides, homocysteine, a thing called von Willebrand's, which I didn't know what it was at the time. I thought he was a First World War pilot personally, but I, I made a mistake there, uh, and all that. And he, his conclusion was that the two most important risk factors for determining your risk of a heart attack or stroke were or are blood thickness, so the more thick your blood is, the more, you know, more chance it, and the thinner your blood is, within a certain parameter, because everything's on a, on a curve, right? You don't want too thin, you don't want too thick. And the other one was arterial stiffness. And it, so basically, if you have soft arteries and you have relatively thin blood, your risk of heart attack or stroke, despite any other marker, is right down there on the floor. So how do we improve our um, uh, viscosity of our blood and our, and our arterial stiffness? Yes, there are drugs that thin blood, but they've lots of nasty side effects and you can get into serious complications where you end up nicking yourself and you, it doesn't stop bleeding right there's plenty of that goes on but there are natural ways to think i mean obviously we've already alluded to giving blood one could give blood and be very altruistic and helping other people as well at the same time but there are natural agents the most classic one is garlic garlic's a blood thinner i believe chilies are blood thinners um we, some years ago, we were in Thailand, uh, university in Thailand, when we were measuring people's arterial stiffness. And I became fascinated by it because all the local people, we never had a bad result. The local people were either good or okay in terms of their arterial stiffness. And the foreigners that were there, either living in Thailand or had flown in for this particular event that we we're at, they were either okay or bad. And I, I just put it down to the, 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 you know, the food. And I think that chilies have a blood thinning aspect. And then, as you probably know, Thais eat a lot of chilies. Um, so there too, I think onions also to a lesser degree, but it's the allicin, it's the smelly part of garlic that is very good at blood thinning. Of course, drinking water is a way to improve it as well. 
looking at, um, and there are some good um, uh, supplements as well. Uh, I could mention natto kinase, which is the Japanese um, plant, very good at blood thinning. Personally, I can't stand the stuff. I've tried it. You can get it in capsules, of course, and then you won't have to eat it. One of my favourites is um, Lumbrokinase, which is branded Baloki. It's actually an earthworm extract, but it is also very, very effective. And another um, uh, plant I, I like, personally, is from the uh, Periwinkle Minor plant, and that's called Vimpercetin. Very, very good, very interesting. And that's actually what we call a vasodilator. And it's been proven to improve blood flow in the smallest of arteries and capillaries, including those in our eyes and our ears. And is actually a very good and quite effective treatment for tinnitus. So if anybody out there's got a lot of ringing in their ears, have a look at Vimpercetin. Very, very, very interesting product. I like that. It's also good for memory generally as well. So it's one of my one of my favourites. Um, and looking at the arterial um, stiffness side or softness side, um, the most magic ingredient for doing that and doing it in a very quick way, although I will also say the effects are relatively short-lived and therefore need to be repeated, is anything that raises nitric oxide levels in the blood. So um, there are two amino acids that are very effective at doing that. One is lysine. Uh, arginine is also relatively effective and the other is the watermelon I mean thank you thank you very much for that that is also very effective I'm sure if one eats watermelons there would be some effect I can't put my hand particularly if you chew up the seeds because ah. they're very good as a kidney cleanse yes yeah ah that's a very good point about seeds and I would say look to the work of a guy called Dr Brad Weeks he calls himself the seed doctor in the States, always oh, fascinating lectures that, that Brad gives. Um, and the other one is, um, uh, is beetroot. So beets, again, because they're quite rich in arginine and lysine and some of these other amino acids. So you get those in the diet, you're gonna raise your nitric oxide levels. And, and by the way, Viagra raises nitric oxide levels. I may as well mention it, I suppose. That's one of the mechanisms of action. Um, uh, but, but over a period of time, and also anything that reduces glycation. So one of the problems with diabetes is that diabetics have it, what, what they call advanced glycated end products, or ages, and they're more prevalent in diabetics, unfortunately, than, than in non-diabetics. But there are, the, the drug metformin is effective at reducing glycated end products. So is its sister, which is hard to find, called aminoguanidine. And one, another one of my favorite, um, it's actually a dipeptide, it's two amino acids, and that's carnosine. So that not, not to be confused with carnitin, but carnosine is also a very effective anti-glycator as well. So those, those agents can help soften arteries. So one of the theories that I've heard about the giving blood and the women no longer having periods is that they say that uh, we have, in many cases, excess iron going on, mm -hmm, mainly mm -hmm. because we've got low copper. Okay. That, that is what the difference is. Suddenly you've had some of your iron removed, mm -hmm. and you're then feeling better from that perspective. Really that, that. That, that sounds reasonably sensible to me. I think of all the um, minerals and agents that are out there, the one that we rarely lack is iron. 
Uh, I'm not saying everybody doesn't, but you know, the, the old blood test and see if it sinks to the, well, to the bottom. Dogs get anemia wrong, don't they? Mm. They think anemia is low iron when it's probably low B12. Yeah. Um, conceivably an imbalance of magnesium, mm -hmm. you know, a number of things. Mm -hmm. But it is, it is probably one of the few that we don't need to... Most people... Well, I agree. In and the supplements, when, when you see iron-fortified cereals, as you mm. know, that's iron filings. Mm. I mean, that's, that's that, cruel. Oh, yeah, that's awful. That's dreadful. Um, but it does go snap, crackle and pop, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> oh, suck it out. Yeah. yeah, unbelievable. Just a side note on iron that you may find interesting is, um, is if you put EDTA into a bathtub for example, and you climb into the bath, um, it has a collating effect on the skin. And one of the things it will collate is iron. And so, okay, so what? Who cares? Well, the interesting thing is that the, most of the photoradiation, we go out in the sun for a long time, and, um, and you start to get deep-set wrinkles, you know, because you, you're, you're causing a lot of free radical reaction. The free radical reaction is the sunlight reacting with the iron in the skin. And so one of the things that you can do is if you take regular, I'm sure there's probably other ways of doing this, of course you can consume EDTA as well and get more iron and other minerals out of the body. But if you were to climb into a bath with EDTA in the bath, you will collate the iron out of the skin and it will go down the plug hole. And you will know that because you will be able to spend more time in the sun before you burn. So that could be a useful, and you could lead that further and be a bit controversial and say, and even reduce your risk of a skin cancer. Let's talk about some of the issues that are perhaps not quite so well understood. Let's talk about oxidation. Let's talk about antioxidants. Let's talk about... Free radical scavengers? Yes. <laughs> That's all right. Free radical Sorry, scav <laughs> scavengers and uh, oxygen species and so on, and cholesterol, which of course mm -hmm. is a part of everything. Yeah, thank you, Clive, yeah. My knowledge on this is, it goes back to a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Rich Littman. Uh, Rich is a lovely man, and um, he is a free radical expert. In fact, some of his work was uh, nominated for the Nobel Prize in Medicine. So he's quite radical. So he's quite radical. <laughs> People used to think that free radicals were the guys with long hair riding motorbikes, but that's not, that's not true. <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> um, so basically, I think everybody knows... We've got a helicopter going over there. So basically, every, I think everyone knows now about free radicals, and I think everyone's heard the um, uh, free radical theory of aging, which was developed by a guy called Denham Harnham and I had the pleasure to introduce him on stage once, unfortunately he's no longer with us, of course, because he came up with that theory in the 1950s. But a free radical is a molecule that is unstable, basically. But most people think it's unstable because a molecule or an electron has been removed. It's the opposite. It's one's been added. So, but they become unstable and they basically start crashing around and whatever they crash into, they cause damage. But there are five levels in our body, and we actually have three levels of defences in our body against these free radicals. Now, come back to Rich Lippmann, if anyone's interested in finding out about his work, he has written a lovely book for the public called Stay 40. So you can find that on Amazon, so I would recommend that. And I'll tell a quick story that's in the book that I think is the POW in the book, 
as it were. And that is that you see a bunch of people in the book, people who are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and they're standing in their underwear and they're all a bit flabby. They're all a bit, you know, whatever. Um, and they decide to get fit. But this particular bunch of people, and there's about 12 of them, they decide to use aerobic. So they, they go running marathons and treadmills and all the rest of it. And then you turn a few pages over and you see them again, standing in slightly smaller underwear. And to a person, they all look slimmer, trimmer, and you think, well done. And there's the proof, aerobic exercise is great. But if you're not very observant, he didn't put any heads in. They're all headless. And then you turn over the next page and now you see the before and after heads. And to a person, they look 10 years older. Wow. They've gone wrinkled, their hair's greyed, or they've even lost hair or whatever. So, and Richard says, these are older people. In, uh, you know, it, it does, it's not going to happen to somebody in their 20s. It may not happen to somebody in their 30s. But once you pass that sort of 40, 45, our free radical defences have declined significantly. So what's going on? Oxygen is a dual-edged sword. On one hand, it provides us with amazing energy. On the other hand, it creates a lot of free radicals. And those free radicals are created in our mitochondria, which are the little organelles, the powerhouses that are in all cells. And they're vital because they produce the universal energy molecule called ATP, and adenosine triphosphate. And unfortunately, let us say, for example, that our mitochondria and our liver are not functioning well, they can't borrow the ATP from somewhere else. It doesn't work like that. So it's so vital that those mitochondria are functioning in every tissue. And the sad thing is that aging mitochondria are a bit like government. Basically, what happens to aging mitochondria over time is they get bigger and less efficient and become inefficient. So exactly like government, right? <laughs> so anyway, um, so with all that in mind, how do we protect ourselves? I mean, one can argue and it has been argued that if you're an older individual, it is more healthy for you to adopt a strength and flexibility exercise program and not be too heavy on the aerobic side of things. And, and I know you could argue, well, yes, the jogging's not good for your knees or whatever. There's an impact on the joints. But now we're talking about the free radical damage that's occurring in the mitochondria. So... What Richard did is he did a 228 experiments, actually, uh, while he was in Stockholm. He, today he lives in Hawaii, but he was a Swedish gentleman. <clears throat> and he discovered a bunch of ingredients that are very natural ingredients that are very effective at each level of free radicals. Because here's the problem. You can't take one free radical scavenger or antioxidant, if you prefer to call it that, to to negate all free radicals. They will be most effective at one level, but if you nullify a certain level, you actually create even more at the next level. It's like a pyramid. Now at the top of the pyramid, in terms of naturally produced free radicals, I'm not talking now about exposure to radiation or something like that, but in the course of our lives, with these various problems, aerobic exercise included, <coughs> the most deadly we have is a superoxide radical. If you nullify superoxide radicals with a certain agents, you create more of the second level, which is the hydroxyl radical. 
And those two are probably the two worst that we have in our body, okay? Although our body creates two chemicals that are very good at naturally nullifying them. And they are melatonin, which is possibly the most powerful antioxidant that our body produces naturally. And the second one is cholesterol. And there is a theory, and this has been proposed by Dr. Lippmann, that some people may be having high cholesterol, because where is cholesterol? Most cholesterol is being produced, I mean like 95% and up, is being produced by our liver. So why is a liver in some people producing copious amounts of cholesterol when the doctor's trying to give you a statin to stop the production of it? What, what's going on with that? Well, Richard's, one of Richard's theories is that we've got a free radical production going on somewhere, that there's high levels of superoxide and hydroxyl radicals, and the body's reacting by trying to create a free radical scavenger, i.e. cholesterol. So that's, I know it's only a theory, but I find it a very interesting theory. Um, I'm unaware if there have been studies where people have been given certain antioxidants and watch their cholesterol levels come down. I would find that very interesting. Conversely, slightly off topic, but we have touched on it before. Let's also remember that cholesterol is, is the base material for every hormone in our body. So our body relies on us, it's a stupid statement, but it's a true statement, to eat the right foods so that we take, we in, we take in various enzymes and particularly B vitamins, particularly B3, B6, B12, that will methylate cholesterol into a hormone. And it's like a tree. So if you think of cholesterol as the trunk of the tree, as you go up the tree, you get the early, the first um, hormone that's produced is pregnenolone. After pregnenolone, it goes off in all directions, DHEA, testosterone, estrogens, etc. It goes ooh, like a tree, it will go off in all directions. But if we're lacking the various methylation agents, the only way the body can react, let, let, let us assume, let's make an assumption that we're low in testosterone. Right, so the only way the body can react if we're not taking in the right foodstuffs is to make more cholesterol. And there is evidence that either one, when the right agents are given, i.e. let's say the classic is vitamin B3, niacin, very good at lowering cholesterol levels. Or the other way, I've heard doctors who give, who take a patient in, they say, right, you've got high cholesterol, but I've also noticed, this is an example, you're very low in DHEA. And, th and some of these doctors, and there's a guy called Sergi Zugan, Dr. Sergi Zugan, and he's written a number of books on this, that has given the patient DHEA and normalizes their DHEA level and watches their cholesterol drop. Ooh. So that would help verify that concept that the body's trying to make cholesterol because it's lacking a hormone. So there's a number of approaches that we, that we can take in there. So coming back to antioxidants, what Richard did is he ended up producing a product that he ended up calling ACF228, which stands for Antioxidant Complete Formula. And he put lots of good things into this, including some pretty rare items like catalase and a substance called NDGA, which um, 
you know the tumbleweed that goes through the desert, you know, the typical watching Clint Eastwood and the tumbleweed goes past him. Well, that's where most of it is found. But when you think about plants that live in extreme environments, whether that's freezing cold or boiling hot, they have to have protective agents. So Richard's discovery of NDGA in tumbleweed is, is an extremely good free radical scavenger for the worst free radicals. But he put, he put a whole bunch of other ones in because it's like a pyramid. So like I've said, if we, if we neutralize superoxide radicals, we create more hydroxyl radicals. So basically he designed a product that takes it all the way down the pyramid. So very good product. And it's called 228, of course, because it was his 228th experiment that showed that that was the best combination. So stay 40, good book to read if, you're in, if you want to get into that.